everyone. This morning we have a bit of an opportunity really to put into uh, practice one of the values we have as a church uh, with the passage that we're going to look at as we'll see in a minute in that we are Bible people here. We want the Bible to be first and foremost in our lives, in our doctrine, in uh, how we assess all situations and also in the way that we preach and, and come to the word. So cherry picking scripture is something that we often accuse people on a more um, liberal side of things of doing. You know, they're just choosing the bits they like. But often, conservative, uh, Bible-believing Christians can be just as bad with this if we only preach on the bits that we want to reinforce our views. or we And, and you guys are kind of held captive at the preacher's favorite verses. And so, we don't do that. We have been preaching through Luke since January 2021, so coming up two years, I don't think we're going to be done until kind of two and a half years in. We're going through verse by verse through this gospel, coming to chapters and sections that we wouldn't choose to go to, but we think this is God's word, and so it's good for us whether we find what it says comfortable or not. Now, this morning, that comes out in two ways. The second one we'll see later, but the first way is that it's not a very cohesive passage I've got this morning. I, I looked at the, the preaching rotor of, um, a few days ago, and I, and I see, right, okay, so, so if you open up your Bible to Luke 16, you'll see what I'm talking about. So some of the previous headings in your Bible you should have seen, for instance, are the parable of the lost sheep. There's a nice little section. You preach on the parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost coin, another section. Preach on that. The parable of the lost son, parable of the shrewd manager. These are all nice sections of Scripture we can preach from. This one, the NIV is so appropriately labeled additional teachings because it's just kind of three unconnected sayings of Jesus that have just been put together in a particular place. And so I was thinking to myself, I kind of have a few options as I come to this passage. I could either choose the saying that I like the most and can spend the time in there. I could choose the one which I find the most challenging or I could try and do what all the commentators try and do, which is try and convince you that these three are actually all very related to each other. Uh, I'm not going to go for, for that one. I don't think that it, they are. I think that Luke has formed a very, very orderly account of Jesus' life and ministry, but hasn't included everything Jesus has said. We know that Matthew has stuff that Luke doesn't, and Mark the same. So if you did uh, the deep dive course with us in the Gospels over the summer, you'll know that there are big differences between the Gospels. But nonetheless, there are sayings of Jesus that would have been so circulated in the churches. And this is just a kind of a, a, um, a thesis. Maybe it's wrong. But Luke probably thought they'll probably want to hear that one so he includes some random ones maybe that's not what it is maybe there is some big connection which Luke knew and none of us do but it seems to me that Luke has just kind of thrown in these three passages together and so we're just going to work through them now one of them the third one is a particularly tricky one and as I say this is another opportunity to put into practice what I said at the beginning I would not choose to preach on the third of these I, I'm quite honestly not looking forward to doing it now so uh, we'll talk about that more as we come to it. But let's just look at these first ones. So in Luke 16, verses 16 and 17, I'll read these two as, as, as though they were one. They're easier to group together. So it says this. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. 
Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Now let me just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is good for us. We thank you that whether it's challenging or encouraging, it nonetheless comes from you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, the wisdom to take on board, and the care and compassion to apply in our lives and to the lives of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Now, this, this could be taken to mean a whole lot of things. This could mean the force of the law and the prophets. Think about how forceful the law is in the life of a, of a first century Jew. The law has a certain way of living that if they were to go and live somewhere else, they would look like complete outsiders because the law binds their life in such a way. They don't eat certain foods. They don't uh, wear certain clothes. They only go to certain places. They don't eat with certain people. And this could be taken to mean essentially that what Jesus is saying is the law and the prophets, that this part of your Bible, the bit we call the Old Testament, this was relevant until John. But now... It's all about the kingdom of God. That could be one way of taking it, and some people do take it that way. I don't think that is what it's saying, though. I think what it's saying is that John the Baptist coming, this point of shift from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, those old forms and ceremonies and shadows and all the things that we see there, there is this hinge point. Something massive has changed now that Jesus has come. It's like... They were looking forward to something bigger. They were shadows. And shadows can be very clear. Sometimes you can make out the outline of something very clearly in a shadow. Sometimes you can't. But when the real thing comes, you see everything that the shadow was showing. The bits that were clear, the bits that were unclear. And so now, the kingdom of God is the expectation of the law and the prophets. And so now, it's not that they're gone, we don't care about those anymore, but the thing they were looking to has come. And so now the kingdom of God is preached, and this phrase, and everyone is forcing their way into it. You might be thinking, what the heck is that talking about? What does it mean to force your way into it? Now, I'm not going to bring up decades of uh, debate on this, but this is a kind of a contested translation. Uh, One commentator who I'll... um, appeal to if you if you want to read more a man called Bock who is an expert on Luke Daniel Bock and and his translation and I think it's the the best one really is that this should actually read the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is urged insistently into it it's not that people are trying to force their way in and Jesus is saying no 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 you can't come in it's that Jesus is going around not not kind of forcing people in but urging everyone in this is the kingdom Hear what the law and prophets said. Hear what they were looking forward to. Hearing what this eating different foods and wearing different clothes and going to the right places at the right time. Hear what this was all looking forward to. I'm urging you to come on in. In the same way, often today as Christians, we can kind of say, well, look, for me, I'm a Christian. For me, I believe in God, and I think there's some good things in that. And kind of leave it to other people, you know, and if you want to explore it, up to you. If not, maybe not. But I think what we're seeing here is actually if we believe the kingdom of God is as good as we do believe it to be, then we can't just say, it's up to you. Ultimately, you can't force someone to become a Christian. But you can urge insistently for them to enter in. Hear what's being said. Hear about the kingdom of God. Hear what's out on the other side. 
It's like if there's an elevator that there was a sign on it saying, you're not in service, danger, and you know full well there's danger, and someone's come along and removed the sign, you see someone else going into it. Ultimately, you can't make them not get on it. That responsibility is theirs in the end. But what you can do is stand there saying, don't get on. That is not the safe way to go. And so in the same way, when we come to the kingdom of God, urgently insisting people into it is simply the manifestation of we believe this is what centuries and centuries of longing and promises were looking forward to, the kingdom of God. And so when we talk to people about the gospel, we've got to have that urgent sense that we know in our hearts that this is from God, that this is an offer that is beyond anything else that can be offered. If we're not convinced of that, we will not convince anyone else that. So this, this calls us to come back and think, are these promises as good as I believe they are? Is the gospel, the good news, really as good as I believe it to be? Because the thing is, whatever you consider to be good, you will find no difficulty sharing with other people. If you've got something at a discount at a shop or you've had some family news, you'll have no difficulty even telling strangers on the street, can I tell you what happened to me? And so if we do believe that the kingdom of God is good news, then we should talk about it as such. There's, there's no uh, code you need to follow. There's no script you need to read. You don't need to say the right things. Just be you. Have you experienced it? If you've experienced it, then you have something to talk from. You don't need to tell someone else's story. You don't need to say something that's going to be ticked and signed off by the elders. It's good if our doctrine's good, but ultimately, what we need here is people who are uh, rubbing shoulders with those who don't know, being told, urged in. You can't make them accept, but you can urge. And so, since the time of John, Jesus has been going around urging insistently people to come in to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then goes on to give a slightly related phrase. He says, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out from the law. So if we were in any doubt that Jesus' coming doesn't put the law away, doesn't say the Old Testament is irrelevant, it's in the very next verse. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The law stands. Now, how does that relate to things like the fact that Christians today can, can eat prawns and shellfish and wear whatever clothes you like and all those kind of things? Are we saying, well, those bits we don't like, those bits are irrelevant, we don't care about those bits. The bits that we think are right and wrong, that's the bit that we hold to. That's just back at the cherry picking, isn't it? So are the options either we say we do everything that would have been done as the Jews at this time would be doing, or we have none of it. And now we think that perjury is fine and swindling is fine and bestiality is fine and all those other things are fine as well. Well, actually, it's that the substance of the law stays forever. The shadows, to go back to that comment earlier, the shadows, the, the expressions for a certain time go. So if I put it like this, when we first moved into our house, Coming up two years ago, our daughter Jelly was only eight months old. And she'd never lived in a house with stairs before. And boy, were those things exciting. 
So as a little crawling toddler, well not a toddler, as a little crawling baby, all she wanted to do was climb up those stairs by herself. She can now walk quite well, and she is allowed up the stairs. Have our rules changed? No. The rule that we have, the substance of our parenting, is we want our daughter to be safe, happy, and flourishing as a person. When she was eight months old, the expression of that was, you can't go up the stairs by yourself, wait for mommy and daddy. If that was still the case when she was 18 years old, then we wouldn't want her to be flourishing and happy and healthy. We'd be keeping her down. Do you see the point there? The expression changes with time, according to context, according to situation. The substance is unmoving. And so in the same way, at a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular revelation, God gave his people certain instructions to express something, but they were not the be-all and end-all. Now that Jesus has come, we can put those things aside, not because we look back and say, how stupid were they, but because something has changed in the expression of that. And so, for instance, when God says, love your neighbor as yourself, in Leviticus, it's not Jesus who said that, it's Leviticus, are we supposed to say, well, I think that was just part of the shadow. I I think that was all just part of an expression of something, and now it's changed and I can, you know, hate my neighbor. No, some things weren't contextual at all. Some things were just relevant for all times and all places. But when God wants his people to be set apart from those around, there's a context to that. And so we can say completely consistently, not a stroke of a pen has dropped out from the law. I can say I don't do the same things that first century Jews were doing, and yet we have the same rule book. And and we can be honest about that. We're not cherry-picking. We're not just taking the bits we like and the bits we don't like. We are being honest to God's revelation. I would be disobeying God if I were to say now, I don't eat with Gentiles. I don't eat pork. I don't do the things in the Old Covenant. I, I do animal sacrifice to have my sins forgiven. The things that were right before would now be wrong in response to the revelation that we've been given. As I say, just like it was, r- it was right to stop an eight-month-old from climbing the stairs because of what we believe to be true. And in the same way, it would be wrong to stop an 18-year-old. Same, same kind of thing. And so not a stroke of a pen has dropped out from the law. The law is still our standard. It's still our guide. God's law is good for us. We're not under its curse. We're not trying to earn our way to God through it. We're free from the curse of the law, but it is good for us. Right, I'd like to finish there. But I'm not going to. Because of what I said earlier. Now, before I read this next verse, let me give some caveats. Um, This is a sensitive topic. I've probably got upwards of 15 minutes to talk about it, 15, 20 minutes. I would rather have three hours. I would also say there are lots of nuances that I would like to give that I don't have the time to give. And I would not be surprised if I were to upset people potentially. That's not what I want. I want to do right by people I care about. But more importantly than anything for me is I want to do right by God's word. I want to get down from this stage knowing that I've handled God's word 
carefully and obediently. So we're going we're gonna to come to this, and I, I welcome anyone to come and speak to me about it afterwards or get some one-on-one time. I would much rather talk about this topic one-on-one. But nonetheless, the Bible does take us to it. Verse 18, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So divorce and remarriage can be quite a tricky subject for Christians. And one of the problems that we have is as a culture, there has been a particular shift where we've gone from what you might call a very, very, very restrictive view. So uh, the Catholic Church, for instance, which had dominant power over these kind of things until about the 1600s, had taught that there was never, ever, any form of legitimate remarriage. And if you had divorced and remarried, you had to dissolve that marriage and return to the first one. The only exception was if you had inadvertently married a cousin or a family member. So that was the norm, and people were quite happy to sit with that because that's what the power in charge said. Nowadays, the shift has gone completely the other way, and we have a very pragmatic, individualistic view, which is essentially, if this marriage isn't working for me, I can end it. And so, nowadays, we have the concept in our legal system of a no-fault divorce. doesn't matter if you uh, have good reason for it or not, you can just end it. And so, we've got this huge shift, and what I say is, if we're going to be faithful as Christians... We want to say, well, I'm not going to go with that because that's assumed in our culture. And I'm not going to go with that because it's old and disagrees with our culture. We want to carefully consider what the Bible says. And before, I, before we go to the divorce even, or before we go to the remarriage section, I just want us to spend some time thinking about marriage itself. Because if you're here, either single or married or divorced and remarried yourself... I want this to be relevant to you. If you're not yet married, if you don't even have uh, uh, someone who you're thinking you, you might marry, I still want this to be relevant for us. Because ultimately, marriage is put forward in the Bible as a very sacred thing. So Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is an opportunity for a husband and a wife to live out, small scale, an analogy for Jesus' love for his church. So, so Paul takes the reference in Genesis where it talks about marriage and he says, this is a mystery and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So you know when an architect is doing a, a big building, they often f- first create a little model so you can see the big picture in miniature before the work begins. It's as though the marriages that we share, so my marriage with Anna for instance, is supposed to be like a miniature model that looks to the real thing of Jesus' commitment and love to his church and his church's commitment and love in response to him. And so it's a special thing. I mean, think about the, the vows that you make in marriage. You vow to give yourself to that person, body and soul, you'll provide for them, that you'll care for them, that you'll love them. And the caveat is not so long as they return it. The caveat is not so long as we're in the right situations. It's whether poor or rich, whether in good health or ill health, the one caveat is till death parts us. 
So marriage is this uh, situation where, unlike pretty much all other social situations, you do not give what is deserved. You give what has been promised. So I don't say, for instance, well, Anna's really been holding up her end of the bargain this week. She's made me feel respected. She's uh, managed our household well. She's looked after the children. In that case, she has earned my love. The challenge of marriage is that you give what is promised, not what's deserved. And so whether or not she's giving me a terrible week, which she's yet to do. Sorry, I need to stop picking on you. But whatever is going on, I have promised to give myself to her. And so, for that reason, what, what the point I kind of want to make here is marriage, just as a relationship, is itself a sexual union. And by that, I don't just mean it's two people who have sex. What I mean is, even at that point, at the altar, when you say to each other, everything that is mine I give to you, with my body I honor you, there is a sense in which that sexual union has already begun. Because actually... Sexual intercourse, the physical act, is just a physical expression, a biological, sensical expression of a self-giving and receiving, a yielding yourself to someone else, knowing that you are also being yielded to and honored in what you have. So the, the point I'm trying to make here is that even if one of you is at work and one of you is at home, that's still a sexual union. Everything that goes on in that marriage is a giving and a receiving and a giving and a receiving and a yielding to each other. I hope I'm not losing anyone here. So the point I'm trying to make is this is something that is to be protected and preserved and worked on. It comes with a moral obligation. The, the hope is that in marriage you constantly feel like teenagers in love with each other that can't bear to be apart. I just saw Jane Watson nudge Steve. <laughs> Love it. Because obviously, that's how you guys are, right? <laughs> the, the reality is, I don't think I know a marriage where that's the case. But that really doesn't matter. Because whether you feel it or not, you've still made those promises. And so the moral obligation comes in the fact that you say... If you're a husband, I pursued my wife to that altar, and just because I've now got her doesn't mean I'm done pursuing. You wake up and you say, today, I'm going to pursue my wife. I'm going to earn her love afresh, and I'm going to love and honor her as I've promised. And vice versa, from the wife, despite the mess that my husband makes around the house, despite the ways he winds me up, today I'm going to make a decision to honor and love my husband just as I promised to do before God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, any empty words spoken, God will hold to account. And he's referring there to vows. So on your wedding day, you, you made a vow before God and before man that you're going to do certain things. So with, with that kind of clear, the, the, the very high view of marriage that we want to have as Christians, it's not just a, a kind of, We'll go into this relationship to get the government involved with our relationship, and as long as the spark lasts, we'll be together. That's not what's going on here. Can you imagine if that's how Christ's relationship was to his church? 
So long as they do all the right things, so long as they're perfect and doing everything, I'm going to keep going. If that was the case, the church would have been dropped long ago. In fact, if you look at the church, you realize how patient a husband Christ is. So I want to get that really clear, that that the importance of marriage is essential for us to understand. And actually, before we even come to divorce, we need to remind ourselves of those things. There's a moral obligation in it. It's good. It's from God. It's supposed to be an expression of the love Christ has for his church. Two people are bound together. For most people here this morning, I would say, that is going to be more important than anything else about divorce or, or any, of those, uh, any of those other things. Even if you yourself are in a situation which is unhappy, the thing you shouldn't be listening out for are, well, what are the appropriate grounds for divorce? I would say for 99% of people, what we need to be reminded of is the moral obligation we do have in marriage, to love even when things aren't good. But nonetheless, Jesus does talk about it. So in, in Matthew 19, we get a bit of a fuller answer than what we have here in Luke. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3, it says this. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This was a, a, the, the popular viewpoint of the day. There was a, a rabbi called Hillel, and he had taught that basically, if she does something as little as burning the soup... That's grounds for divorce. That was, that was a real case that we have in, in history of, of Hillel saying, yeah, she burnt the soup, divorce her. So that the popular view, they come say, can we do it for any reason? And Jesus, notice like what we've just been saying, he doesn't say, no, 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 let me tell you the legitimate grounds for divorce. Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus answers the question by saying, let me remind you what marriage is. Marriage is something baked into creation. Marriage is where two people come together and they become one. Leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, the two become one. So let's not separate that. Then they go on. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they're going, what are the exceptions? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because because your hearts were hard. It was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, now listen to this. He's just said, except for adultery, no divorce. And their response is, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. So Jesus has kind of set a rule here. The exception is adultery. And their response is, taking seriously the gravity of that, I mean, if you say that in today's culture, people will say, you can't say that. It's no different here. So they say, it'd just be easier to not marry. What if you end up in a situation where she simply isn't the woman I thought she was? Well, 
Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if this is too hard, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, stay unmarried. In the uh, liturgy that we go through in this country when you get married, one of the things said is, uh, marriage is a commitment that should not be entered into lightly, but after due consideration. And the Anglican liturgy for that verse comes from this section where they're essentially saying, well, that's a lot to take in. If that's how serious this is, Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, 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 sorry, it's actually fine. He says, yeah, you might need to decide not to get married. And so we have an exception here given. Now, again, I'm just going to reiterate this. The absolute rule that Jesus establishes is if you, if you um, divorce and remarry, that's adultery. That's the kind of the most blunt he gives. Now, I'm not going to go and say, but he doesn't really mean it. What I am going to go and say is, Sometimes Jesus' absolute teachings, absolute statements, are forceful for a reason. He's trying to drive home a point. So when he says, if you call anyone a fool, you're liable for judgment. It's a strong, explicit, in-your-face saying that calls you to think twice about what you're going to call people. And then a few chapters later, Jesus comes to the Pharisees and he says, you blind fools. Is Jesus disobeying his own command? Or when Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all evils. A lot of translations soften this today and say all kinds of evil. But that's not what it says. It says all evils. Does Paul really think that every evil that has ever happened comes from the root of all, uh, from the love of money? I don't think so. But the point of an absolute statement is it drives home a point. And so, for most of us, I think we just need to sit with that absolute statement. Just take it seriously. And then, come to those exceptions. And the exception that Jesus gives here in Matthew 19 is, except for sexual immorality. Now, that the word here, so that everyone can learn a Greek word, is Pornia. It's where we get the word pornography from. So, pornia is not simply adultery. It's not simply having sex with someone else. It's an umbrella term. It can refer to lots of different things. And so, I mean, this is the great challenge of wisdom, isn't it? Wisdom isn't a rule book. Wisdom doesn't say, if this, then go to that. If this, then go to that. Wisdom says, think hard about the situation. Does it look like this? So, Jesus saying this doesn't just cover one particular type of situation. It might extend to a number of them. But the other interesting thing that he says here is he says, if anyone divorces his wife, okay, so there's a divorce, they're no longer married, but then he says, and marries another except for this, he's committing adultery. Okay, there's a, let me just draw out the complication there. So, they're divorced, They're not married anymore. They're two individual people. 
But then one of them goes and remarries, and now Jesus says, well, that's adultery. What that shows is that moral obligation we talked about earlier that comes in marriage doesn't end just because you've broken up. This is really challenging, I think, because what that's essentially saying is even after you've broken up, there is a moral obligation to be reconciling, to put into practice the radical Christian view of forgiveness that we claim to have, to be pursuing that person when it's gone. And so part of the challenge of what Jesus says here is not just, well, if you're divorced or if you're planning to get divorced, does it fit this requirement? It's, are you willing to be reconciled to them? I think that's a real challenge. I want to jump somewhere else. Now, I'm I'm speeding through this a lot more than I would like to. And as I say, I'm not spending time getting into the nuances that I would love to. So if you do have any questions, as I say, do talk to me afterwards. But I just want to jump to another place, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about marriage. And, And I'd like to read the first section of this as well as the second section. So the first thing it says is, you wrote to me, says Paul, that it is good for a man to have, uh, for is not, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So they've written to Paul and said, we're assuming it's not good to have sex with a woman, right? And Paul says, no, 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 since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife. In other words, there is a context where sex is not only appropriate but right, and that's in marriage. And each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Wives, take that seriously. But then husbands, in the same way the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. The, um, you might know about the, the Puritans in history. They're often kind of held up as people who hated fun. I mean, it's, it's complete nonsense, really. You actually spend any time reading the Puritans, you see that these guys had a real love for life. But one of my favorite stories in New England is there was a new married couple. They'd been married for three weeks, and the wife came and complained that her husband thought it was more holy not to sleep with her. And uh, he was chased out of town by the, <laughs> by the Puritan authorities for failing to... Uh, fulfill his marital duty. But anyway, that's that's me getting sidetracked. And then it says, verse 5, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. So that the, the image that Paul is saying here is marriage is the place where not only sex can happen but should be happening because it is itself a sexual union. And if you are going to stop, let it only be for a short time. So I just want to, I think that's important to get Paul's view of marriage here. But then we're going to go a bit further down to verse 10. And he says this. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And by that, he doesn't mean, um, I'm going to speak with the Lord's authority sometimes and with my own authority other times. He's not saying that. What he's simply saying is, Jesus says this in the Gospels. A wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Same thing we talked about earlier. 
They may be separated, but that moral obligation to reconcile is still there. And the husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus hasn't spoken about this. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Just because they're not Christian doesn't mean your marriage is any less valid. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. As it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So, the situation we're seeing here is something unlike what Jesus could speak into. There weren't unbelievers and believers in the same way that Paul experienced in Jesus' ministry. So, Paul is experiencing something unique here. You have someone who has come to faith in the Greco-Roman province of Corinth. And so, their husband and their family or their wife is going to be doing... Greco-Roman things. They're going to be distinctly unchristian. And so now they're thinking to themselves, do I need to divorce them? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. Live with them, marry with them, be a married couple if they're happy to stay. But if they up and leave you, you don't need to go and pursue them. In fact, he says, you're not bound. In other words, you can remarry if you like. I mean, how, how it would make any sense to a divorced woman in first century Greece to be told, you're not bound in marriage, but you also can't remarry. It makes no sense. Paul is clearly saying, you are free to remarry. Because God has called us to live in peace. So I think what we're seeing here is that abandonment, leaving your spouse, is something that fills the category of pornea, sexual immorality. Now, let me start making some points quickly rather than beating around the bush. What this means is we, we take those three things about marriage, leaving father and mother, holding fast to wife, the two becoming one, and we say this is the essence of what marriage is. Anything that would violate that contract, those three things, is pornea is sexual immorality because it is itself a sexual union, right? And if there has been a divorce which is legitimate, then a remarriage is fine. So that's a a point I want to make and put out there. So if the divorce is legitimate and it's not just having sex with someone else, it's all pornea, then the divorce is legitimate and the remarriage is legitimate. And I think that's important to understand. But the other thing that we're seeing, therefore, is that Paul says, in circumstances like these, in other words, there may be lots of different situations. When a husband is abusing his wife or vice versa, that is pornea. That is a violation of what it means to hold fast to your wife and the two becoming one flesh. So when people who are in abusive situations need to leave, 
They need to feel absolutely no guilt about that. That's completely legitimate. That, that the spouse has violated that marriage contract. And I think that's important to understand because the absolute statement that Jesus makes is, is good and right and true and it's from the mouth of the Lord. But it doesn't mean that we don't apply mercy and compassion in situations like this. Now, the, the point that we're at now could go in so many different ways. And as I say, I would love to have hours to get into the nitty-gritty of this and kind of go over this and apply it to all situations. We don't have that kind of freedom or that kind of time even. But I would simply like to make it clear this, that there may be people here this morning who what they need to take from this is, I need to love my husband better, I need to love my wife better. If that's what you take, excellent. There may be people here who realize I need to go and reconcile with my spouse. That moral obligation hasn't ended. There may be people here who have for many years thought that the remarriage that they were in wasn't right in God's sight. And I want to say, take seriously what the Bible says. If, if it's legitimate, God honors that marriage. So, as I say, I, I welcome anyone coming to talk to me. I, I, as you can probably imagine, feel the burden of this this morning. It's not something I would have chosen to go through. But we want to honor God. Jesus says, not one stroke of a pen will drop out from the law. God's law is still going to be our standard, even when culture says something completely different. And, uh, yeah, I'll draw us to a close there. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to humbly come to your word and despite our own feelings or our own thoughts or what the culture around us says, we want to take seriously uh, what you've spoken. Take seriously your law as your people. Lord, we thank you that there is um, ample grace offered to us. Lord, we thank you that the mistakes we've made in the past are not the things that define us in you. And Lord, we just pray for a um, healing to broken relationships. Pray for fresh sparks in um, struggling relationships. And Lord, we pray that we would seek marriages which best honor that picture of Christ in the church. So in the name of Jesus, we bring these things to you. Amen.